Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, continuing on our journey here. As uh, you notice, uh, it's quite a short passage from verse 15 to 20, uh, six verses there. But we'll start where we didn't finish last week with verse 14, particularly with the, the last comment there. Uh, now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles, the kings of Israel? So uh, this comment here, what is then the Chronicles of kings of Israel? We have uh, mentioned before the Chronicles of the kings of Judah, and now we have mention of the Chronicles of kings of Israel. This repeats several times, even again in verse 20 in tonight's passage. Um, so we need to note that when we're reading documents like this, that there's often external uh, clarification or uh, references that are, are made known, uh, specifically in this time, the Chronicles of Kings of Israel. Now, what this is, is not chronicles in our Bibles. Uh, it's a different, separate document, a historical record um, documenting uh, reigns and deeds of the kings of Israel. Two separate books would have been kings of uh, Judah, kings of Israel. Different uh, nations kept different records. Uh, and so they're mentioned throughout this as, as another reference. So they must have been ex- in existence when First Kings and Chronicles were written. At some point, we, uh, they were lost. Now, we don't know exactly what they contain. Uh, some form of official record, most likely, of uh, royal scribes and historians. Uh, most likely at a, a more in-depth uh, reference than what we find in, uh, say, the book of First Kings. So uh, it would have detailed things like their events, accomplishments, fail- failures of each monarch during their reign. Uh, probably genealogies, military campaigns, building projects, religious reforms, and other uh, noteworthy occurrences. Uh, so they would have contained a, a whole lot of information that we don't find in First Kings. The book of Chronicles is actually written later, believed to be written later. Um, again, our, our records in the Bible aren't written in a Western perspective from the 21st century with dates that we have. Again, we, we have a clear break in history with A.D. and B.C. that wasn't really clear until later. <laughs> it didn't, like, first A.D. didn't roll around and said, all right, how are we going to start counting now? You know, it was long after there. So even just aspects of history, how we record it, um, you know, you read any biography, most likely it's going to be broken down into chronological order with dates. Uh, that's not how the Bible is. There's a different uh, culture that writes it. So the Chronicles is most likely written in the time of exile. And most likely, many scholars believe that it's Ezra or someone similar around the time of Ezra. And they compiled these biblical accounts from such as First Kings that we're reading or uh, the Chronicles of Kings of Judah, Kings of Israel. So, but we do not have the extant, that means uh, we do not have documents currently of these uh, chronicles of the kings of Judah, kings of Israel. Uh, so the Bible ultimately is the, uh, the source that we go to. Um, so we need to understand that they're not in reference, but they are referenced by the Bible. Now, does this change our view of the Bible? 
No. Uh, many people want to try and argue that the Bible is merely a man-made document and that as a man-made document, it contains errors, faults, and, and flaws. And the Bible is very specific, mainly that the Bible is a selection of books, man-made books, that were put together by man for man's purposes. And so therefore, their understanding is how do we get the Bible? The Bible was turned into the Word of God over a period of time through councils and actions and, and different things like this, that the Bible is not the Word of God. It merely as church councils have then referred to that specifically. And so they want to emphasize the man-centeredness uh, of it, the man-selection process of it, and how men sought to be able to make it the Bible. Now, the Bible references many other sources that are not contained in the Bible, not just here in in Kings, referring to the Chronicles of Judah and the Chronicles of, um, I was going to say Narnia, but the Chronicles of uh, Israel. But it, but it doesn't then, because they mention them or even quote them, as Jude sometimes does, seems to allude to be able to quote them, doesn't elevate them up to Scripture. And then it also doesn't then take this Scripture, what is God, and lower it to the other standards of the other way. You see this in, in debate. A lot of Old Testament uh, scholars, even in, in New Testament thought, a huge part of liberal theological teachings is that uh, they come to a book and what they want to try and do is they want to show that it's a man-made book. And as a man-made book, it contains errors, faults, flaws. And what they seek to be able to do is then try and be able to separate it from the time and place it was written. So uh, Moses writes the first five books, the Pentateuch of the... Uh, of uh, the Bible, and what they want to try and do is they want to actually say, well, it wasn't written by Moses. It actually was written by about four or five different people, and then you had a, a compiler together. So you had the Deuteronomist, and then you had the Leviticus uh, priest. You had all these different types, the Elohim, uh, God, uh, Yahwehist type, all these, and they put it together, and finally they compiled it. And what that does is it weakens that it's, it's God's word. And what they do is they try and say it's a man document. It's a man-made document. Therefore, it contains errors, faults, and flaws. And it's not true historical fact. And so what they do is they embellish the stories, elevate the stories to be able to make God bigger, grander, so their worship is more justified or it teaches them morals of what to do and how to live. Obviously, I don't think they've read much of the Bible, because the Bible really, if you look at the heroes of the faith, as we would call them, they don't really live uh, a very moral life. Uh, many of them are actually, uh, you know, as Jacob, a, a liar, a trickster. But, so what they want to try and do is they want to try and make them human writings. And But what we actually find is all these extra human sources that are, are referenced or quoted in the Bible often actually validate what the Bible says to be true. And there's many things that we can actually go to other sources to be able to see the truthfulness of the Bible. Now, that doesn't then make the external sources how we verify what the Bible is. It all just works together because the Bible is written in history about history. And then if you read historical facts, you're going to find out the truth of the Bible. You can find about Herod's death and when he died in about 4 or 5 B.C., Herod the Great. You can read about Luke in chapter 1 with the uh, 
uh, Greek, um, the Roman uh, governors and, and other things, even Eastern cultures that come and visit Christ in the manger have a strong records of, of star movements and, and uh, all these other facts that actually verify and help us to be able to navigate and pinpoint maybe even the time when Jesus was born. And actually, this is nothing nothing new that just came about in the 17th, 18th century, or even beyond. It's actually something that the church has been facing, and the reformers had to actually face this as well. Commonly uh, called the Apocrypha is a book of collection of writings that uh, somewhat came into the Bible. And the Westminster Divines had a, a special clause within the first chapter, and it says, books commonly called the Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the church of God, nor are they to be otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So these 15 books that were uh, added to the Bible... Uh, Psalm 151, also a couple of editions in, in Daniel and Esther. And the Roman Catholic Church kind of put them all together and said, here's the Bible. This is a holy scripture. And, and the divine said, no, 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 that's not it. They're human writings. And so we shouldn't elevate them. So the divines really have two categories. There wasn't a middle row in this. You notice the distinction there in, their, in how they do it. The, the books commonly called the Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration. So you here you have divine inspiration as one category, and then the others right at the very bottom, the last part, then other human writings. So here you have human writings in the Bible through divine inspiration as men chosen by the Holy Spirit were carried along by the Holy Spirit as, as um, uh, 1 Peter explains in 121, and so, or, or 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. This is the distinction of how we classify what is the Bible, not human writings. And so we need to be cautious that we don't elevate these writings, even if we were to be able to go and find these two books, the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah or Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. That doesn't then mean that they're a part of Scripture, that they elevate. They might be accurate and true in most of their parts, but it doesn't mean they're divinely inspired. And there's the distinction that we need to be able to make. So uh, more commonly, I think this happens more in New Testament. Uh, Old Testament kind of gets thrown to the side, but it, it's a, still a part of higher texture cri criticism. But uh, a part of it is that in the New Testament, what they say is the Gospels. Well, the Gospel, well, we found another Gospel. So therefore, that Gospel must be the Bible. But again, we're not using those distinctions of divine inspiration or human writings. We're not making that uh, case. So, um, again, people can then classify how do we know that these documents actually existed? What did they say? Are they trying to hide something? Again, all these questions often come with a negative outlook. They're good questions to ask, but often what they're trying to do is merely just disprove the Bible. That's the number one aim. Make the Bible a human document. That's what we try and, that's what they try and do. So, just because they, we don't have the original copies, does that mean it doesn't exist? Now, we have an original copy of the Declaration of Independence, but if someone was to lose it or someone was to burn it or, or something was to happen to it, then do we know that it wasn't there? Well, no. 
Because we could go to all these other sources. There was copies that were made. There was quotations of it in people's writings. And so too, when we go to the New Testament, it's very clear. Old Testament is a little bit harder. And when we think about merely just how, it's not merely that God wrote Scripture down. He wrote it down on paper. And he, it's in a physical world. So to be able to preserve all of Scripture is quite a task. It, just relative in terms, we have next to a very small slither of historical extant, it means that we have it, documents throughout all of history. Plato, we have maybe about seven of his writings. Aristotle, maybe 53 of his writings. Shakespeare, even that in the 16th century, 17th century. And we've got, he, ha- he has maybe about 720. And we have maybe about 250 of those. You just think about writing something down on a piece of paper and just how paper uh, degrades over time and, and how you've got to keep it and, and what happens to it. To be able to keep these documents for a large amount of time is quite a task. So for them to go missing as, as not the, the scripture, per se, uh, scripture, but the chronicles of Israel, the chronicles of kings of Judah, doesn't mean that didn't exist, doesn't mean that this didn't happen. And this is a huge argument that a lot of people come to the Old Testament, especially through the kings of Israel, and they say, we have no record of a nation of Israel or Judah during this period of time. They weren't mighty, they weren't strong, they really didn't fight many battles. Really, the Bible is just embellishing all these stories and lifting them up. Now, we'll talk about it briefly next time, but um, Omri is actually quoted in in other uh, sources outside of the Bible, which then defeats and debunks a lot of these theories that a lot of people had, that the Bible was really just making all of these up. So I think it's important for us to understand this a little bit of, uh, for us to be able to see. Um, because we need to understand that the Bible doesn't just come out of a vacuum. When we say that the Bible is divinely inspired, what we mean is that God used men to write the Bible down within history, within time. And those records were then seen by people as the scripture that they preserved it enough, that they um, looked at it. And again, this is why a lot of people come back to the Bible and say, well, they just changed it. What they, they come at it thinking that people just saw this as just a historical fact. It's just a record that we're just keeping. It doesn't matter if you change history, but if they actually elevated it like they believe and like we understand it, that this is God's word then to be able to change that is quite a different deposition than just changing Scripture. And you see that, that care that they take to be able to transcribe uh, the Bible throughout all of history to make sure that we have a fa- this, this Bible recorded throughout all this time. You ever wondered how the book that Moses wrote gets to be able to become in our Bible? Well, it's through God's preservation, through providence, but it's also through ordinary means of men keeping that and recording that this 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 trans this this scroll is getting tattered we need to copy it and copy it meticulously and i think when we understand things like this when we're reading it it gives us a great appreciation for what we actually have in front of us again the westminster divines 
uh, quite clearly said that, you know, this is a, through God's providence has preserved his word throughout all of time. And here we have it before us. It's not merely just that they printed this in 2021 or whenever they printed your Bible. And it's, this has been preserved throughout all the ages. That now we actually have it in our language, right in our very eyes. What a glorious thing that is for us to be able to study and to be able to understand and to be able to understand how this got to us. So when we come to passages like this where we see a little bit of this history before our very eyes, it should give us a great sense of appreciation of how we get the Bible and why the Bible is the Bible. It's not because people made it the Bible. It's divinely inspired, and therefore people understood it of the Bible. Let me finish with an illustration. People often think that they, when they come to the Bible, it's like looking at a circle and a square, and they say, this one is going in the square category because I want it to be a square. And therefore, we will call it a square, even if it's a circle. What they're doing is they're labeling it how they want it to be labeled. And that's how many scholars, liberal scholars, think that we just call this the Bible. Well, we want this book to be the Bible because we don't like this one. We don't like the Gospel of Thomas, so therefore, let's just rule that one out. And so, um, but that's not how it is. What's the classification, divinely inspired or human writings? So they come to it and they say, is this divinely inspired? Is this a human writing? And and they were able to look at them and to be able to understand. And God, through his spirit, not only uh, was the one who authored them then to be able to write down what we have in our scripture today, but it's also the spirit that is also help who illuminated their minds to be able to understand as the scriptures. Again, it's the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1. is very helpful with that. But let's now return back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 16. And we'll read the, the passage in full from verse 15 to verse 20 here, looking at uh, Zimri and his reign. But here's uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 15 to 20. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tizah. Now the troops that encamped at Gipthion, uh, which belonged to the Philistines, and the troops who were encamped heard it, said, Zimri has conspired, and he has killed the king. Therefore all made Israel, uh, therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel, that day in the camp. So Omri went up to Gipthion, and all Israel with him, and they besieged Tizar. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the king of Israel? So uh, normally we have a movement here in the slide from one king to the other, but here Elah uh, goes right down to Zimri, and you wouldn't even notice that. As we just read, Zimri reigns uh, seven days. We met Zimri last week. Um, He's now the fifth king of Israel. He came into Elah's house when Elah was drunk, and he struck him down. He made himself king, 
he uh, he reigns in in his place in the twenty seventh year of Asa. Now, the first thing, and the, probably the most important thing that we notice about Zimri is that he's, he only reigns seven days, a week. Uh, seven days, shortest reign of the kings of the Bible. Uh, very short compared to even historical other kings and things like that. But specifically, what we noticed last time is Zimri was really a, a self-made king. He did this all of his own account. Here we notice that uh, they're at Gipthion, uh, fighting the Philistines. So Israel is um, in another place, the army of Israel. So Zimri takes advantage of that. He strikes down Eli and just makes himself king while no one else is there. And so we really see the, the downfall of, of Zimri here. He's, he's probably thought about this for a long time and sought to be able to do it. But it really, as, as we read in Matthew, for what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Here, he, Zimri sought to be able to gain the whole world. He did so through his own means, his own devices. Uh, the man who, who builds all his silos after upgrading them and is unable to fill them. And this is Zimri's reign. Uh, before a week is end, he's uh, no longer king. And so we've noted before that God deals with wicked kings in different and various ways. Uh, sometimes what we want to happen is that the king, the wicked king reigns and is immediately dethroned. But that's not what we see. Often what we've seen in the pattern so far is God warns the wicked king. He finishes out his reign, normally a long reign of 22, 24 years. And then after this long reign, his son reigns in his place. And then the destruction comes to their household through their son. And so... But here, what we actually see is this, this judgment is quite quick, just seven days. And so here, Omri hears about this. Omri goes up. He's, he's made king by the people uh, there in Israel. Obviously, you can see that uh, to delve into the political situation here that, that uh, Zimri was probably not a well-loved person. Um, you know, people are not overjoyed that he's king. They're, they find out he's conspired against Elah. Maybe Elah was a loved king, and uh, Zimri really wasn't. But here Omri goes up, uh, and he besieges Tizar. And, and this is where the capital of Israel has been, basically since the start and the very beginning. And so what we know is that now Zimri uh, realizes that this city is taken. Some historical accounts point out that uh, Tizar really was a beautiful place, but it wasn't really a fortified city. It wasn't really built to be able to withstand uh, attacks of such degree. So it would have been quite an easy defeat. Um, and so here he goes, and uh, Zimri realizes that he, he, there's not going to end well for him. Uh, so what he does is he, he burns uh, the king's house and over him with fire, and he eventually dies. Now, interestingly, when we think about this, as we've, we've gone through First Kings, it's interesting to think about what is burnt previously and how that kind of relates to this story, just briefly. What happens to the idols in, in 1 Kings chapter 13? And the man cried against the altar of the word of the Lord and said, O altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son of shall be born of the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who makes offerings to you. And human burn, bones shall be burned on you. And again, in 
chapter 15, uh, verse 13. And he also removed Makah, his mother, from being queen mother, because she had an, an abominable image of the Asherah. And Asah cut down the image and burned it in the brook Kidron. So here, what happens is this threat that here all of these idols are going to be burned. Now it's uh, you could go all the way back to Joshua and to look at the story of Joshua and, and the conquest, how they dealt with these false idols was, was often through burning them is the prophecy. And, and here, this is the death and destruction of Zimri. The idol is burned. His idol of the house, what he sought to be able to do, was burned into ruin. He commits suicide. He's treated just like the idols. Matthew Henry says this, See what desperate practices men's wickedness sometimes brings to them and how it hurries them into their own ruin. See the disposition of incentories who set palaces and kingdoms on fire, though they themselves are in danger of perishing in the flight. He was really willing to be able to see all that he wanted burned and ruined, and in the end it was his ruin in the, in, in, uh, through this act that he does. Now this is uh, actually an important turning point in Israel's history, as we'll see next time, that uh, Omri, the person who follows him as king, actually sets up a new capital in Samaria, and this becomes the center capital of um, Israel and their history. But all of this comes about by this this man's uh, foolishness, I guess, to be able to burn this house. So, but what we need to notice is, is here, this, that's what's happened. That's the history of the fact. But what does the Bible actually tell us about why this happened? Well, again, we get some information of this. We don't get the insight into the psychological analysis of why Zimri would do such a thing. But we're told specifically in 19, verse 19, that he did this and he died because of his sins that he committed. Doing evil in the sight of the Lord, making, walking in the way of Jeroboam, for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. So here again we see the, the connection between the burning of the house, a human choice of Azimri's own doing, but yet this death is still a way that is carried out, this judgment from God for these sins that he has committed. Now broadly speaking, you know, these seven days reign, he was king over Israel, which is important. But also we need to understand not just these sins which were committed in these seven days. All of his reign. He was a high-ranking officer over half of uh, Elah's chariots. So he, he only reigned seven days. But notice that doesn't change the, the judgment. Actually, this is the same refrain that we've heard over and over again. The length of time isn't the important thing. It's, it's what they do with what they've got. Um, in this short time, he's still judged for the deeds which he did. They're his sins. He, he's not doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. He's still walking in the ways of Jeroboam. Again, the family tree has changed several times, but the connection that the author is making and wanting us to be able to see, it's not about their family heritage. It's about who is their father in the way that they follow. They're still worshipers, just like Jeroboam was a false worshiper. They still act like Jeroboam. 
Again, what we see is this, this case building of the fault and the sin of Jeroboam. And what we're going to see soon, we're going to get to Omri and then Ahab. And what happens throughout all of this is this emphasis of, of it's been a repetition so far of like, there's, they're committing the sin of Jeroboam. They're committing the sin. And then we get to Omri and then he's even worse than Jeroboam. Then we get to Ahab. And it's not merely just this... Um, Repetition. There's this repetition that gets louder and louder throughout all of this time. It builds over time. So then once we get to, we know how it ends with Assyria coming in. Once we start to begin to be able to understand, it's not merely just that it's just flippant judgment. It's years and years of disobedient kings, time and time again, doing worse than they did before. Just as in uh, the book of Judges as well. So we, we see this connection even through he made Israel to sin. So again, the, you might be able to say this is limited to his seven days as king that he didn't act. But I think what it speaks more is the broad time of his time in his political career. And so his, his kingdom, he, he fought very hard and, uh, uh, to be able to find to be king. And he does. He gets six verses in our Bible. Seven we'll look at shortly. But here in... Uh, Verse 20, now the rest of the acts of Zimri and, and the conspiracy that, that he made, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Israel? So Zimri, although this short reign, he actually becomes quite a popular name. Now not in a good term or a good time, but uh, Zimri is actually used as an example uh, and, and is used as, as, as a terminology. Uh, you're such a Zimri. And they, people might have said, maybe you might have said that on the playground. But here in Second uh, Kings chapter 9, verse 31, Jehu comes in and Jezebel uh, says to him, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? So although he has a short reign of seven days, he's actually known for one thing, that he's the murderer of his master. And so... Interestingly, we need to keep this in mind when we go to be able to read the story of Jehu, which is Second Kings chapter 8 and 9, you know, two years from now probably, by the rate we're going. But, but they want us to be able to understand this connection because we're going to see this contrast between Jehu and uh, Zimri as well. And what we need to then be able to see is then that the pattern that often is found in the Bible, that there's this pattern that power produces all that you want. You want to move up in the ranks, you need power. You need to be able to grasp and attain all that you seek. But that's not the philosophy in the Bible that is is the way of the kingdom, you might say. That actually this is exactly what they wanted to do to Jesus in John chapter 6 is they, they wanted to make Jesus king by force. They wanted him to come in and wipe out the kingdom of the world so that he could go on the throne. Well, that's exactly what Zimri did. And you, you see even how Jesus then interacts with the religious leaders or more importantly, the political leaders of the day He goes in meek and mild, silent as a lamb. He answers their questions. They don't turn around and say he's been disrespectful to the leaders of that time. But here you see that 
He comes in all humility, not by coming to be able to force his way to be king, like Zimri was or Jehu does. And what we see is that it's through this, as the author of Hebrews points out, that Jesus, um, namely Jesus in verse 9, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone. So we see this, this, this model of suffering leads to glory. Now what the, the Zimri's philosophy was is someone else's suffering will lead to my glory. That was his model that he sought to be able to do. And this metric that we see all throughout even the Old Testament is that Christ is coming and he is going to suffer. This is why Peter is so confused. He's so confused because Jesus says, well, Christ has come to be able to suffer. And that's uh, not what Jesus rebukes him and says, you haven't understood what this is. This is the pattern, actually, that Jesus explains to the road on to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he asked the question, what things? Interesting, you know, to think about Jesus responding in that. Jesus who knows all things. And he's like, oh, what things are you talking about? Just, you know, maybe he wanted to see the look on their face. And they, they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all people, now our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Their hope was he would come in like Zimri and come and clean the slate and rule on a throne. Their hope was set on the wrong thing. He did come to redeem Israel, his people but not in the ways that they thought. Again, this is why Jesus then needs to explain the Old Testament as he comes in verse 26, and was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures for the things concerning himself. He starts with suffering first, not through uh, defeat of, of slaughtering the other, but suffering himself. Again, he meets with disciples later in, in Luke chapter 24. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and Moses, of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. So here's the way the world in Zimri seeks to be able to, the other person must suffer that I might be king. But Christ comes and completely in an upside down world and kingdom comes and, and suffers for us, dies for us, that he would be made king through his death, through this death and suffering that he procures his kingdom. As we see in Revelation chapter 19, he is clothed with the robe dipped in blood, the name of which he is called the word of God. And then down to verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, 
He has the name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. He comes King through his robe dipped with blood, through the suffering of himself, that he might be King. Whereas he answers in John chapter 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Again, we see these patterns in this, this Old Testament, not that we see, you know, Christ in Zimri, we actually see the Antichrist. We actually see the way of the world, how he seeks to be able to be king, and how short-lived his kingdom is. But yet what we see is that this is the way that people think this is how you make yourself king. But that's not how Jesus comes to be able to make himself king. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.